Hey, everyone. Hungry for more knowledge food? Well, join our Patreon at patreon.com slash curbsiders and become part of our staff at the prestigious Cashlack Memorial Hospital. That's right. We've been hard at work upgrading our website, expanding our video offerings, recording new seasons of Teach and Addiction Medicine miniseries, and growing our Digest newsletter. With the Curbsiders Patreon, you can become a house officer and get access to twice-monthly bonus audio and video episodes with me and Paul recapping episodes, sharing picks of the week, and answering listener questions. Or you can opt for full cash slack admitting privileges and get all episodes ad-free, including the entire back catalog, plus the bonus episodes. And you're going to get access to cash slack's Discord forum where you can connect share ideas, and just basically ask us and our team anything. So join our community today at patreon.com slash curbsiders and become part of the Cashlack community. That's patreon.com slash curbsiders. Hey, curbsiders. Meredith and Moni here. Just wanting to plug one more time that the hospital medicine um, episodes are going to come out on the first Monday of every month. So tune in for more hospital medicine content. Again, first Monday of every month because the first must mean it's better. Yeah, get excited, people. (laughs) The Curbsiders Podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Hey, Curbsiders, Moni. Uh, this is the last of our three episodes we did from SHM. It was recorded live, but obviously not live for you. This one is acute liver management with the wonderful Dr. Suchita Sada out of Duke. And we can't wait for you to hear this one. So here we go. And we're back live from Austin in a conference room. Meredith, good to see you again. You too, with a little less echo this time. A little bit or more. I don't know. <laughs> Uh, we're actually really excited because we just got out of this fantastic talk by Dr. Shuchita Sata from Duke about decompensated cirrhosis in the acute setting. And we're really excited to be able to basically go over her talk um, in this conversational form. So before we do that, Dr. Sata, would you please tell us a little bit about yourself? Thanks so much, Moni and Meredith. Uh, I am riding the high of giving a talk in a big ballroom. I am a... 30-something-year-old woman in medicine, academic hospitalist at Duke University Hospital, first-time mom to a seven-month-old. I'm an academic hospitalist and clinician educator, teaching and driving high-value care while simultaneously coaching and mentoring the next generation of academic hospitalists. Fabulous. Fantastic. I think we'll stick to our um, Austin theme picks of the week. And since we're sort of on a time limit, I think we'll just kind of keep it there. Uh, Moni, do you want to go first? No, because I need to think of one. Meredith. What you got? <laughs> no. Um, I think I'll just stick to your food theme because I know you're not going to be able to do this. And even though we haven't actually gone to do this yet, I'll okay. say it. Um, Texas barbecue is the best. Brisket. The way to go. I know I'm talking to a vegetarian right now, but that's okay. Um, but I'm just excited to be back in a state that knows how to do some good barbecue. That's That must be wonderful. Um, I am from Kansas City, which apparently has good barbecue as well. Not that I would know. Uh, my pick of the week is going to be sentimental. I got to meet Meredith's parents, spend some time with them, which was super fun. Um, and we had a really good meal too, actually. It was called Peacock is yeah. the restaurant. Yep. Mediterranean food. It was delicious. So, Cheetah, do you have an Austin pick of the week for us? Um, well, I'm from North Carolina, and Carolina barbecue is a thing. But uh, we had the chance to go to Epoch Coffee, which is a local coffee shop, and have a delicious beverage. Um, and you know what? My Austin pick of the week is going to be SHM Converge because I know it's a great city, but I am here for this awesome convention and Society of Hostile Medicine Conference is the best conference out there. It's a great place to network and learn and just have a lot of fun with people all across the country. Yeah. If you've been watching our social media feeds during the conference, you'll know that uh, CEO Eric Howell agrees. <laughs> um, so, no, we're excited to be here, too. So I think we should just jump in. Does that sound good? I like it. So uh, we have Mr. Murphy. He's a 56-year-old male, and he presents with new onset abdominal swelling. He hasn't seen a doctor in 10 years. 
And while he's hemodynamically stable on presentation, he does have fluid wave on exam. Um, and his notable labs include a white count of six, creatinine of 1.1, and an INR of 1.9. So we're talking a little bit about um, nuanced ascites and obviously some decompensated cirrhosis here. Um, and I think kind of the best place to start, um, Suchita, would be if you could kind of walk us through some of the pathophysiology of decompensated cirrhosis. Yeah, I uh, love talking about decompensated cirrhosis. And I think that Mr. Murphy, like you said, has ascites on exam. So first, I guess, take a step back. What is decompensation in cirrhosis? And um, traditionally, it's defined as the onset of ascites or a variceal bleed, um, though we can think about it as any essentially organ dysfunction or complication related to chronic liver disease. So people can live with cirrhosis without a symptom, but when they come in to see us as hospitalists, it's because they're ill, whether that's a presentation of ascites or worsening of ascites and the discomfort that leads to that, leads from that. The infection or spontaneous bacterial peritonitis, hepatorenal syndrome with acute kidney injury, um, GI bleeding, um, portosystemic encephalopathy, which is what everyone likes to call, what I call hepatic encephalopathy now. Um, and those are the main things we think about with decompensation. So how I approach the newly, uh, the patient with newly decompensated cirrhosis is in a systematic way. Um, right? We have, I mentioned all those examples of decompensation, but they can all kind of lead to, to each other and from each other. So ascites can lead to uh, hepatorenal syndrome. Hepatorenal syndrome can lead to encephalopathy. Encephalopathy could be due to SBP. SBP can also lead to hepatorenal syndrome. It's all just this giant circle of related physiology. And so we take a step back to actually answer the question you asked me of what is the physiology here, right? We have the liver, we have a circulation um, in the portal system, it's portal vein and then the splenic vein. And we have a fibrotic liver with portal venous hypertension that leads to congestion in the gastroesophageal venous system and decreased blood flow peripherally, vasodilation peripherally, and that leads to decreased blood flow to the kidneys. So renin, angiotensin, aldosterone upregulation, plasma renin activity is increased. That leads to salt and water retention. So you have fluid accumulation because of that. So that leads to things like ascites um, and then future um, kidney injury. Cirrhosis is also a um, problem of synthetic function of the liver. And we think about synthesis in the terms of proteins as well as the clotting factors. Um, and it's also a problem of clearance of the metabolites, right? That leads to encephalopathy. So we have coagulopathy because of the clotting factor synthesis problems. We have encephalopathy related to the suboptimal clearance. And then we have all the fluid and hemodynamic issues related to the RAS system with how the kidney's blood flow is impacted. So as much as cirrhosis is a liver problem, the kidneys play a vital role into it. Also, the selfish, selfish organs need the blood flow. Yeah, uh, it's always a system and there's too many things leading to another and it's very hard to keep straight. So I think a really good place to start in terms of like what we're doing is ascites and like what do you do with like especially this patient who came in with new onset ascites, like where do you start when they walk in and you're working them up? You have to take a systematic approach for every patient who comes on, comes in with nuanced ascites, right? I mentioned that there's all these things that could be the triggers. And so we have to systematically evaluate it because most of those don't have symptoms with it. Ascites is the sign that is a harbinger of underlying issues. So ascites doesn't develop completely by itself usually, right? It is often triggered by something in that person that has changed or gotten worse or um, progressed to the point of now having ascites. So I approach it with, you have to think about the portal venous system. Is there a portal vein thrombosis? Every patient who comes in by guidelines should have uh, imaging to evaluate for portal venous thrombosis, whether that's a right upper quadrant ultrasound with Dopplers or a CT scan. And also every single patient with new onset or worsening ascites or patients who are hospitalized with ascites should have a diagnostic paracentesis. And that is per the AASLD guidelines. Um, and we often think about 
we don't need to do a paracentesis in somebody because I don't clinically think they have an infection, right? Uh, so we think about infection being SIRS criteria, white count fever, symptoms, abdominal pain. SBP is purely a cellular diagnosis or spontaneous bacterial peritonitis can only be diagnosed with a diagnostic paracentesis. So if you're not looking, you're not going to find it. So I think about the etiology of ascites first with what is driving this right now. So in addition to a good history of what's the patient's intake, what triggers have they had recently, the imaging of assessing the portal vein and then the diagnosis with um, diagnostic paracentesis can help you identify the etiology of the ascites. Hi, everyone. We are thrilled that this episode of The Curbsiders is sponsored by Glass Health, a new digital notebook designed for clinicians. With Glass, you can capture all the schemas, scripts, cases, and pearls that you encounter and leverage them to take better care of patients. Their notebook is perfect for organizing all those tutorials, papers, podcasts, photos, and lecture slides that are just building up in your email and on your phone. Glass also has a community library with fantastic pages from clinicians around the world. The community library is filled with dot phrase like clinical plans for common situations that you encounter on the wards and in the clinic. So try Glass for yourself today by visiting glass.health to keep all your medical knowledge in one place. That's Glass. Dot health And the pro version of Glass also gives you access to their AI features and medical knowledge visualizations. You can get one month of Glass Pro free by signing up at glass.health and using the code CURBSIDERS. That's glass.health and use the code CURBSIDERS. Going through that etiology, when you do find that portal vein thrombosis and someone... Um, can you kind of walk us through the treatment and the thought process for deciding on anticoagulation and all of that? Yeah. So first, um, if you are finding a portal vein thrombosis on ultrasound, confirming it on cross-sectional imaging is important. And then you have to ask yourself, should I anticoagulate the portal vein thrombosis in this person? And there is definitely a risk to anticoagulating a clot in someone with cirrhosis because there is coagulopathy associated, right? They're at high bleeding risk, but also high clotting risk. Is that portal vein thrombosis clinically significant enough to put somebody through the risk of treating them with therapeutic anticoagulation? So as we ask ourselves that, I'm going to jump ahead to the answer of you can use heparin acutely in the hospital, but transitioning them to low molecular weight heparin. Um, and we still use warfarin, even though it's hard to monitor INR. And then there are some smaller studies that have looked at DOEX, particularly rivaroxaban and apixaban, though the data around that are not as um, obvious as those for warfarin or vitamin K antagonists. So we have the treatments there, but often you're asking, what is the reason I need to treat this person? Is this person's portal vein thrombus causing ascites that is easily manageable with diuretics and they don't need to be treated? Or is this person's portal vein thrombus causing significant side effects, pain, discomfort that is better for this patient right now? So I think having a patient-centered approach and a shared decision-making around the risks, benefits of treating the portal vein thrombus. And um, as a hospitalist, my cop-out answer is always going to be, I'm going to discuss with my hepatologist. Uh, they, I have the great privilege at working at, I guess, Cashlack Southeast, Hepatologists who see these patients long term can also help make that distinction of deciding if this person right now needs to be treated. Well, that's really good. And kind of back, piggybacking off the coagulopathy piece, I think this is like on top of mind of a lot of hospitalists who are, you know, working with the subspecialists for procedures and things. Let's talk, talk to us about the INR and uh, FFP administration in uh, patients that meet these. <laughs> I believe in high value care as most of us as hospitalists do, right? So we don't want to do things excessively and have to ask ourselves, what's the evidence here? So INR is a number and that's it. It doesn't actually reflect true clotting function. Um, in order to do that, we have to check a ROTEM or rotational thromboelastography to really measure how that clot is forming. But INR is based on factors like what, two, five, seven, nine, 10, protein C, protein S, something about the clotting cascade I learned first year in med school and promptly forgot. Uh, but I think that the INR reflects 
liver synthesis dysfunction. It can be a marker of a bleeding state, but it also doesn't capture the fact the person has higher risk of clotting. So treating just a number isn't helpful. So their guidelines actually support no routine administration of uh, FFP or platelets before a diagnostic paracentesis. And most of our patients who have a diagnostic paracentesis are going to have a small procedure, low bleeding risk, minimal fluid removed for diagnosis. And then the, the risk of the procedure itself, especially when you use point of care ultrasound to localize is extremely low. And so the journal Hospital Medicine says things we do for no reason, a routine administration of blood products before a diagnostic paracentesis. The AASLD 2021 guidelines say don't routinely correct a perceived coagulopathy before a diagnostic paracentesis. So I think a takeaway for us as hospitalists is that and the INR is just a number. Treat the patient in front of you. I love this permission structure. Yeah. <laughs> and I was going to say, so you mentioned this during your talk, and that was actually mentioned in another talk I went to today as well. So it's definitely been a recurring theme. Um, I think going back um, to the SBP conversation and your need for a diagnostic like Paris, you talked like a few minutes ago about, you know, your reason you're doing the diagnostic para is solely for it's a cellular diagnosis. You can't make that diagnosis um, clinically. Um, and I think during the talk too, you talked a little bit about, um, you know, the findings from your cell count and everything. Um, I think it's always helpful to kind of go through what those are, um, those findings that kind of help guide your next decision making. So if you could do that for us, that'd be great. Yeah. So for our patient, he came in with new onset ascites. So first step is like we presume this is due to underlying liver disease. We have to confirm that. So uh, routinely checking a on the first time you're doing the evaluation, checking a serum ascites albumin gradient. Um, so what's the level of albumin in the serum? What's the level of albumin in the fluid that you're checking? So serum ascites albumin gradient greater than 1.1 reflects a transudate. So that's often due to liver disease. And then the next decision point there is what's your fluid total protein. If a fluid total protein is greater than 2.5, that's highly suggestive. It's due to cardiac etiologies and not liver etiologies. So first step is confirming that the fluid in the belly is actually due to a transudative process related to liver, so uh, cirrhosis-related ascites, because lots of other things can cause fluid in the belly. And then you have to think about what's my cell count culture, gram stain, and is this person, um, does this person have spontaneous bacterial peritonitis? The uh, key point here is that you don't have to have bacteriocytes or bacteria in your ascites that's cultured out in order to have SBP and treat for SBP. Uh, right? If you think about it, you're culturing from, you know, someone's got seven liters of fluid in their belly. You're drawing off 50 cc's of fluid, putting it into two 10 cc blood culture bottles and sending it down to the lab. And like, the likelihood of your sampling error being there, you're probably not going to find bacteria if they're just swimming around in low numbers. But what you are going to find is a cellular response to it. So a high cellularity of greater than 250 PMNs uh, is def is a definition of SBP. And then you have to treat that. So empirically with third generation cephalosporins, we generally use a one gram of ceftriaxone a day for five to seven days. If a patient isn't getting better after about 48 hours, then thinking about resistant organisms and treating with piptazo or miropenem or another carbapenem and switching up the antibiotics or repeating the diagnostic paracentesis, seeing if you can culture something out if the patient's clinically um, not improving. This episode is brought to you by Green Chef. They've been a sponsor of ours for a really long time. That's because both Paul and I love Green Chef. You know, Paul, he has a lot of skills in the kitchen. Me, not as much, but I'm learning. And Green Chef helps me with that because they send you all the ingredients. They send you the recipe. It's very visual, the recipe, which I can follow. That helps me a lot. I don't uh, like reading recipes. And I get to make food that uh, impresses my kids and tastes great. And now you can choose from 50 plus weekly menu and market items with options to mix 
and match meals in the same box without having to change your plan. And you can eat well at lunchtime too because they have these 10 minute lunches that don't require cooking. So you can make a nutritious recipe. It takes about 10 minutes to prepare. And as I said, no cooking required. And you know you want to feel your best for the summer season coming up. We all want to look good for the summer so you can support your healthy lifestyle with food that tastes great from Green Chef. Go to greenchef.com slash curb60 and use code curb60 to get 60% off plus free shipping. That's greenchef.com slash curb60 and use the code curb60 to get 60% off plus free shipping. Green Chef, the number one meal kit for eating well. And are there any risk factors for someone to be more likely to have an MDRO? Like I would think if they've had repeated taps or things like that, they might be at higher risk. But is but I don't know if that actually exists or I'm just making that up. (laughs) I don't know if you're making it up because I actually don't know that answer. But I think that um, as we look at antibiotic resistance in general, it's a growing problem, which is why the AASLD guidelines are more stringent around who needs prophylaxis for SBP. It's not any comers with ascites get prophylaxis with antibiotics against SBP. It's people who have illness, like significant illness, high child's pew score, high total billy, high INR, high creatinine, people who are more likely to get sick if they get SBP. They're the ones who need the prophylaxis against SBP. People who have already had it have proven they can get it and they should get prophylaxis. And so we uh, usually use ciprofloxacin 500 milligrams a day or um, trimethoprim sulfa, one double strength tablet daily, obviously modifying that based on age, creatinine and other risk factors and choosing the risk benefit for your your patient if they are going to be at risk for an MDRO. if you're culturing something out that isn't sensitive to ciprofloxacin, probably don't pick that as your prophylactic <laughs> drug. I, People have used metronidazole and other medications as well. One of the things I didn't realize when I was re- that I hadn't realized before is yes, like creatinine, T-billy. Actually, I don't think I'd realize that either. But also like the low protein ascites being one of the higher risk factors. I don't know if I saw a definition. Are you familiar with like what the definition of like low protein? I'm just curious. Yeah, a total protein of less than 1.5 in the fluid is considered as low protein. So low fluid protein is, um, by AASLD guidelines, less than 1.5. And the reason that isn't one of the risk factors that predisposes somebody to SVP is you have low oncotic pressure. So the translocation of bacteria is going to be more likely in that situation. Um, So that's your cutoff when you are checking your total fluid protein. Okay. Yeah, and I think um, they I think the guidelines also talk a lot about how they're just predisposed to more infections in general, which I found to be I, things that I should probably have recognized before, but like that was nice to see in writing. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so we, we've done SVP, we've talked about portal vein thrombus, um, and kind of recentering with ascites. Let's talk a little bit about diuretics and sort of like where to start, where to go, that kind of stuff. I love this topic because it's purely based on physiology, right? We talked about the peripheral vasodilation. We talked about the impaired renal blood flow. Because of that, um, you have the upregulation of the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system and then increased plasma renin activity leading to salt and water retention. So all that fun physiology is simply there to say that the target should be your RAS system for diuretic management here in cirrhosis. So we have the upregulation of the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system, so the increased plasma renin activity leading to salt and water retention. So the target here is target the physiology. Spironolactone is the diuretic of choice in people with cirrhosis with ascites, and you start it at about 100 milligrams a day. And the furosemide in a ratio of 40 to 100, so 40, 40 milligrams of furosemide with 100 spironolactone, that's there for maintaining the potassium balance, right? Um, spironolactone alone has been shown in studies to be effective in fluid management in people with cirrhosis. 
if you are picking one medication to start somebody on for cirrhosis with ascites, it should be spironolactone, which is kind of counterintuitive to everything we hear about fluid management for other disease processes. Uh, but that's a fun of the physiology here in the liver. Um, and then the potassium balance can be managed with the furosemide. We've talked a little bit about like diuretic therapy. I know we use albumin in like liver disease, um, but I always feel like albumin is sort of magic. Like you're just like giving it and hoping for the best. Um, but you talked a little bit about how there's like indications and like evidence that's driving when albumin is useful. Um, so especially for this patient with our ascites, um, if we could kind of go through that a little bit. Yeah, I'd love to refer everyone to um, Suchita Sata et al. in Journal of Hospital Medicine, Clinical <laughs> Progress Note, Intravenous Human Albumin in Patients with Cirrhosis. Um, I'm just joking. But yes, you should go read that article. The There are three evidence-based indications and guidelines-supported indications for the administration of IV human albumin in people with cirrhosis. And when I say albumin, I mean 25% hyper-oncotic albumin, not the... Um, 5% version. This is the stuff that works. Weak sauce. Yeah. <laughs> if you're going to pay good money for this human albumin product, use the stuff that's going to actually make a uh, difference from the oncotic pressure standpoint. So there's three reasons. One is the prevention of paracentesis-induced circulatory dysfunction. And so if you have somebody with ascites and you're doing large-volume paracentesis that's defined as greater than 5 liters, you need to replace some of that volume with albumin on the order of 6 to 8 grams per liter of ascites removed. So if you're taking out 5 liters, if albumin's coming in a 25-gram vial at your hospital like it is at mine, you're probably going to give them either 25 or 50. So six times five is 30, you can err towards 25. Or if you're doing eight liters, eight times five is 40, you can probably err towards 50 gram vial. You don't want to waste albumin. It's expensive, has a short um, shelf life once it's hung for administration. So the math here is six to eight grams per liter of ascites removed. And of course, five liters is an absolutely arbitrary cutoff. Some people say four liters. So, um, the key here is who is at risk for paracentesis-induced circulatory dysfunction. Those are people who already have low blood pressure. That's people who are um, already have impaired kidney function. And the reason we give albumin is to bring more blood flow to the kidneys, those selfish, selfish organs, right? It's about the RAS system and having the kidneys not perceive a pre-renal state. So they have to get more fluid brought to them in the form of us giving them albumin to uh, support their circulatory system. So that's the number one reason to give albumin. Number two reason is for the, during the treatment of spontaneous bacterial peritonitis, you want to prevent the circulatory dysfunction there, right? So if someone who has SVP, a standard of care to do 1.5 grams per kilo of on day one, and then one gram per kilo on day three. And that's for someone who has paracentesis proven SBP. It helps reduce the risk of hepatorenal syndrome with acute kidney injury. Yet another reason why it's so important to do that diagnostic paracentesis up front. And then the number three guideline supported reason for albumin is for hepatorenal syndrome diagnosis and treatment. So you give a dose of one gram per kilo for a couple days, see if you have an improvement with that volume expansion, and then you can continue it with 25 to 50 grams daily. There is no definite endpoint. The answer is when it gets better, when the kidney function gets better, uh, which may or may not happen with or without a transplant. Um, so hepatorenal syndrome, get more blood flow to the kidneys in the form of support through albumin. This episode is sponsored by Birch Mattresses. You know, I've talked about this openly, how I've struggled with sleep. And part of that, that's, uh, you know, that's a, my own mental thing. And I'm, I've worked on that. I've gotten better at that. But another part of that is my old mattress was just saggy, uncomfortable, it was too firm. And now I got my Birch Mattress and I love this thing. What I love about it is very breathable. 
It's much cooler at night when I'm sleeping, which is important for sleep. If you read about sleep, you want to be cool when you're sleeping. So I love this mattress. It's stylish. It's comfortable. It's even environmentally conscious. It's made right here in America, crafted with natural and organic materials like fair trade cotton, organic wool, and natural latex. And Birch, you know what? They ship this thing right to your door in a box. You cut it open. It opens up super easy. It's a 100-night free sleep trial, so I know you're going to love it, but if you don't, you can send it back. And guess what? Your Birch mattress has a 25-year warranty, and as I've joked, who knows if I'll even be alive in 25 years. This thing's going to outlast me for sure. Birch is giving 20% off all mattresses and two free eco-rest pillows at birchliving.com curb. That's 20% off and two free eco-rest pillows at birchliving.com slash curb. Sleep better with Birch. So hepatorenal syndrome is actually a good segue into one of our next cases. So Miss Jackson, she's 51. She's got cirrhosis societies and she came in with some dizziness and fatigue. She's on a diuretic uh, and Cipro. She's hemodynamically stable, but we find that her creatinine's bumped from her baseline from like one to two and a half. And her sodium, which is normally in the low 130s, is down to 126. So, obviously, when someone with cirrhosis comes in with AKI, I'm already thinking about hepatorenal syndrome. But, like, what's, like, my first thing that I need to do? I would love to do all these things parallel. But you would stop the diuretics. Hold those diuretics on emission. uh, Because, again, it's all about supporting the blood flow to the kidneys. So, we hold the diuretics, prevent um, worsening of the volume status. And then, of course, you've already done, in this case, the right upper quadrant ultrasound with Doppler, as you've done your diagnostic paracentesis. You've thought about the reasons this person has an acute kidney injury, and then you transition towards supporting the management of AKI. So you stop diuretics, and then you volume expand. So we go back to the administration of albumin for hepatorenal syndrome with acute kidney injury. And then Often what's happening is these people have low blood pressure systemically, and that is also driven by portal hypertension. So octreotide is a somatostatin analog that will help shunt blood back into the circulation towards the kidneys out of the portal system. Um, So you can give octreotide a 50 mic bolus, a 50 mic per hour infusion. Octreotide, which is a somatostatin analog you can give to help shunt blood back into the system. And then midodrine to support the peripheral blood pressure, right? It's essentially an oral presser. So I like to, my my mnemonic is MAO, midodrine albumin octreotide. That's how you volume expand and um, stopping diuretics to help support blood flow to the kidneys or hepatorenal syndrome. We don't have terlipressin mostly in the United States. It was approved by the FDA in September of 2022. I don't even know if my hospital has it yet, um, but that is a medication that is uh, essentially a vasoconstrictor to help support blood flow to the kidneys. And we don't, the other option is norepinephrine as a adjunct if MAO isn't working well enough. And do you have to albumin challenge them first or can you do midodrine, albumin and octreotide all together? Because I feel like that's what I've done in practice, but I don't know what's the evidence for that or not. So you have to ask, are you treating hepatorenal syndrome with acute kidney injury or are you treating acute kidney injury by itself? Um, So it's hard to tease that out in practice, right? Um, Because someone on diuretics can become volume depleted alone without the neurohormonal changes that are associated with hepatorenal syndrome. So just volume expansion with albumin or the albumin challenge up front on day one is sometimes helpful in reversing the AKI along with holding their diuretics. Um, That's the one gram per kilo dosing for the first two days. Obviously, if they're not getting better or if they're getting worse fast or if they have a significant AKI that you're very concerned about with a low urine sodium, so you already have concerns about excessive sodium retention, then you think about upfront administration of midogen and octreotide. I think it's um, a case-by-case discussion. Um, and often we're consulting nephrology in addition to your hepatology colleagues, because if this doesn't get better, they may need to progress towards transplantation, which is one of the only cures for HRS AKI. And that might be both liver and kidney transplant. 
One of the things that I found to be, I don't know if confusing is the right word, but in reading the guidelines, especially going to the European guidelines, they very explicitly, if I remember correctly, and I could be wrong, talk about how Midogen and Octreid Head are not as effective as like, say, a Norepi or Terlopressin. So why do we use it so much? One, did I get that right? And two, why do we use it so much? <laughs> Absolutely. So the studies are best in terlipressin. The actual outcomes, um, both in morbid morbidity and mortality and like actual kidney function. We haven't had terlipressin here in the United States. So that's a short answer of why we haven't used that. Uh, I'm a hospitalist. I don't practice in the ICU. It's really hard to get somebody into the ICU just for numbers of creatinine. So the version is an oral presser of midodrin, right? What can you get away with on the floor? Often what will happen is the midodrin itself with the octreotide isn't causing enough improvement, then they will progress to be moved to the intensive care unit for the norepinephrine infusion. So I think it's more just a logistics thing of practicing the evidence-based medicine we can in the place that we can, the best that we can, while thinking about being stewards of overall healthcare resources as well. Yeah, I feel like I've been reading about terlopressin for so long. So when you mentioned in your talk it was approved, I like did a little happy dance. It was pretty exciting. Yeah, it's it's approved. Is it approved. available, affordable, and accessible is the question. <laughs> Make a good but it's, point. it's on the horizon. So coming back in for Miss Jackson, let's say she's on hospital day two and the nurse um, is calling you saying, um, you know, she had some hematemesis and now we're going into the um, spectrum of GI bleed. I think that in general, um, like we do a fair number of like just early management of GI bleed, but in patients with cirrhosis, I think that there's just a lot more things you have to think about um, because it won't just be a peptic ulcer. <laughs> um, and so... And it could be a peptic ulcer. It could be. The patients with cirrhosis are allowed to bleed from wherever they want to bleed from. The one that we're most concerned about, though, of course, is esophageal varices, right? Because those are the scary, fast, brisk bleeds that cause life-threatening hemorrhage with potential risk for AKI and all the other negative complications. So you're calling your GI colleagues for the procedure. Uh, and the procedures they'll offer, of course, include banding or injecting glue and dealing with the varices and fixing it. But what can we do while we're waiting for our GI colleagues to come in and work their magic? Uh, supporting the blood pressure. So if they're on things like diuretics or beta blockers to hold them in that moment, um, patients with cirrhosis with varices are often on a non-selective beta blocker to prophylax against the bleeding, but you want to pause it in that acute setting. You want to resuscitate, but not too much. So that perfect Goldilocks amount, a hemoglobin target of between seven and nine. You want to give them enough blood, but not too much to make those varices too juicy to bleed and all the negative side effects of excessive blood transfusion. And then you want to think about what is happening now with all this blood rushing through the GI system all that bacteria that's coming with it, um, are we going to be at risk for SVP? So we actually empirically treat patients for SVP with a gram of uh, for five days um, when they have a GI bleed with ascites. So the big key points here are what do you think is bleeding? Let's go visualize that. Let's deal with that with our GI colleagues. But in the meantime, supporting them with the prophylactic antibiotics and the blood pressure support. And when do you start considering, like, beta blocker? Once a patient has had a bleed and they've had their EGD and they have varices shown on there and they're now hemodynamically stable, their blood pressure is beautiful again, you've saved their life, congratulations. Um, you're thinking about how I prevent this from happening again. So non-selected beta blockers are indicated for prevention of recurrent variceal bleeding, um, but they have to have the blood pressure room for it. Um, and I say non-selected beta blockers, but I all lump in with propranolol and natalol, I'll lump carvedilol into that category, which is technically not one of those, um, but it has additional benefits and has been studied in some studies, has been studied in some trials to actually be one of the best, but it has such a big blood pressure effect, patients can't tolerate it as often. Got it. Okay. So... We had the GI bleed. We did all the stuff that we need to do, work up and stuff. And Miss Jackson's just having a really rough go of it. And day four, she's like recovered from her bleed. You know, everything's stabilized. But now she's like super confused, very confused. Um, so obviously we worry about hepatic encephalopathy. Um, so how do we deal with that? 
And when am I? How many times am I going to check the ammonia level? The answer is never check ammonia in someone with chronic liver disease. That is a thing we do for no, for no reason. Uh, the reason being that hepatic encephalopathy or portosystemic encephalopathy is a clinical diagnosis, right? Miss Jackson is confused. Is it confusion because of her liver? Uh, most likely in someone who's ill. Um, with decompensated cirrhosis, if they have asterisks on exam and have some day-night reversal or increased somnolence, it's pretty much hepatic encephalopathy and you treat it, right? If her ammonia level came back as stone-cold normal and she still had asterisks on exam, you would probably still treat with lactulose. Um, so the treatment for hepatic encephalopathy is a non-absorbable disaccharide. We use lactulose because it's just available. Um, and I like to frame this as thinking about it if you have someone come in with heart failure that's decompensated, you don't use their home dose diuretic. That is one of the biggest pitfalls I see is that we put them on lactulose and say to the nurse, okay, titrate to three bowel movements a day. Here's your like BID lactulose. And then four days later, they're still encephalopathic. It's because we haven't done enough upfront. So if you're someone comes in with volume overload from heart failure, you give them IV diuresis and you ramp up their dose and you treat aggressively. Same philosophy applies to hepatic encephalopathy. Titrate the lactulose to effect. Make them poop. Um, poop till they're clear. And the lactulose frequency, I mean, obviously you can't really do more than like Q2 hours and that's hardly kind to the patient, your nurse, um, and, and everybody else who is downwind of that room. But um, treat Treat the symptoms and treat aggressively up front. That way you don't have to be as aggressive down the road. Um, there are other therapies that have been examined. Um, rifaximin, of course, is a medication we use for recurrent hepatic encephalopathy. Make sure your patient can afford it and access it. And it often requires prior authorization because it is brand name only. Um, zinc is a cofactor in ammonia uh, metabolism. And so that can be an adjunct um, Polyethylene glycol, uh, four liters of a colonoscopy prep, has been studied in one small trial to be as effective, if not more effective, than lactulose. But that's a lot of fluid for someone to drink if they are confused and at risk for aspiration and they don't have oral access with a NG2. And then there are other things like Lola coming out down the pipeline, um, which is L-ornithine, L-asparaginase or something like that, um, that are... A, physiologically makes sense from the, the uh, hepatic encephalopathy standpoint, but my go-to is lactulose and making them poop. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. Is hiring challenging for you? The answer is probably yes. Do you love a challenge? Also, yes, you're in medicine. Well, you need a hiring partner that can help you rise to that challenge. That's right, you need Indeed. It's the hiring platform that lets you attract, interview, and hire all in one place so you don't have to spend hours on multiple job sites looking for candidates with the right skills. You just need Indeed. They're going to streamline the whole process for you with powerful tools. We used Indeed back last year to do some hiring for the show, and we had great results. We were overwhelmed with how many great candidates we got that met our job description. And I would recommend that you use Indeed too. So start hiring right now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at indeed.com slash internal medicine. Offer good for a limited time. Claim your $75 credit now at indeed.com slash internal medicine. Indeed.com slash internal medicine. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire. You need Indeed. I feel like Ms. Jackson's had a bit of a run of it in the hospital. Um, and I always struggle with um, goals of care discussions in end-stage liver um, or patients with cirrhosis in general because it's such a process that they're going through and you're still delivering treatment along the way. And so I was hoping you could kind of like teach us a little bit about how you frame that conversation with your patients to kind of introduce goals of care um, conversations with them. Yeah, cirrhosis is associated with really negative health-related quality of life metrics. Um, it is a chronic disease that people have to live with. And all the things we talked about, the therapies, right? Diuretics, you have to make them pee. Lactulose, you have to make them poop. Um, this is not a comfortable illness to live with. And um, the treatments 
are intense. Uh, we can modify a lot and we can help prolong life. And many patients do uh, have cure disease through transplantation. Um, and that's if they are candidates for transplant. So my first approach is early referral to hepatology so they can be considered for transplantation up front. Um, and that is so key to making sure they get all the guideline um, directed therapies to prevent progression. We've talked about a bunch of them today, but I think the hepatologist can also think about liver transplantation. But then in addition to thinking about transplantation is one is your patient knowing that they are ill, right? Have we shared that information with them? We talk about MELD scores and risks and mortality all the time amongst ourselves, but does a patient know, even though, even though they feel fine from their chronic liver disease, that they have a high 90-day mortality with their high MELD score? Um, so using that information, sharing it, and having that shared decision-making, or at least conversation with your patient, and symptom management, right? Make them more comfortable as they're dealing with this awful chronic disease. And then thinking about discussion of advanced care planning earlier, because not only is not everyone a transplant candidate, that might not be the right choice for people, who, even if they are. The cirrhosis or sorry, chronic liver disease is the fourth leading cause of death in the United States as of a few years ago. And it is becoming more and more common, especially with um, the uptick in non-alcoholic fatty liver disease related chronic liver disease. Um, we're doing great with curing hepatitis C. We have still have plenty of room to go, but um, NASH is becoming more and more frequent. So I think having that conversation about symptoms, priorities, and acknowledging that this is a severe end-stage disease that isn't as obvious as something like end-stage heart failure, but is as significant of a um, trigger point for discussion of goals of care. And I think um you t talked, you know, making sure the patient's a little bit more comfortable while they kind of go through pretty difficult process. What are some of the medications you go to for like symptom management? You can still use acetaminophen up to two grams a day total. Um, do not use NSAIDs if you can avoid them because of the RAS activation and the salt and water retention. Same reason we don't like to use NSAIDs in people with heart failure. Uh, so acetaminophen is a reasonable first step for pain management. Opioids are not contraindicated. We like to be thoughtful around opioid use for everybody. And some of the synthetic opioids are better tolerated than things like morphine. The other symptoms include muscle cramping from diuretics. Um, so in addition to making sure the magnesium and potassium levels are replete, we have to think about things like baclofen, um, methacarbamol, quinidine have all been suggested, but baclofen might be the first go-to for muscle cramping. And um, for pruritus or the itchiness that comes with hyperbilirubinemia, uh, using emollients, topicals, um, there have been plenty of other medications suggested. I think I, I'm not a specialist in symptom management, but being thoughtful about what the symptoms are and asking about them and asking your patients if that is something they want another medication for or if they can tolerate it. Because the medication and pill burden is pretty high. If you think about diuretics, lactulose, rifaximin, a non-selective beta blocker, um, all of the other things that need to be present, present for evidence-based therapy. And do you worry at all like on the baclofen or like in your practice, have you seen that cause like any confusion or altered mental status that then drives you down this like encephalopathy <laughs> pathway? And then you're like, what did I like, do? Are we just Iatrogenesis? No baclofen and CKD. Um, I think uh, Dr. Matthew Sparks, uh, who was on a bunch of Curbsiders episodes, would be thrilled with me saying that. So no baclofen and CKD, right? It's uh, renally excreted. Um, the caution is less obvious for someone with liver disease alone, but being, being aware of what your renal function is, is very important. Wonderful. I think we've hit like a lot of good highlights tonight. Um, and Suchita has to go see her lovely child. Um, so do you want to let us know some uh, take home points you want to make sure the audience got from all of this? Thanks. I, um, I would love to leave everybody with the key exhortation that one, we need to approach decompensated cirrhosis um, in the hospital in a systematic way. There are guidelines that drive medical therapy, just like we do for heart failure. We have to be systematic and think about all the reasons someone has decompensation. So be systematic about 
um, getting the upper right upper quadrant ultrasound, being systematic about doing the diagnostic paracentesis, thinking about all the etiologies that trigger and all the signs and symptoms of decompensation, because that leads to all the guidelines we have to meet um, to provide evidence-based high-value care for our patients. My second takeaway will be albumin has a great wealth of evidence for three indications of prevention of paracentesis-induced circulatory dysfunction, treatment of spontaneous bacterial peritonitis, and then diagnosis and evaluation of renal syndrome. So use the guidelines. Don't excessively waste albumin uh, because there are significant harms associated with it for your patients in addition to uh, financial toxicity. And then three, think about the next step in planning for your patient with cirrhosis. Just because you stabilize them during this hospitalization, you have to ask yourself, what are we doing next for this person? So early referral to transplant centers and hepatologists, as well as early discussions around palliation and goals of care, um, which is not necessarily um, divergent things. Palliation is a process and can be done at all stages of the illness, even if somebody is being considered for transplantation. Fantastic. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us um, right after you gave your talk, frankly. Um, and we really appreciate your time. And uh, anything you want to plug other than your awesome article in JHM about albumin? I love the opportunity to meet you guys. And Society Hospital Medicine has been a great place for my own growth professionally and personally. And so I'm going to plug coming to these conferences, joining SHM, uh, making it a professional home. And it's just been an absolute joy to reconnect with friends all across the country here at this conference. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. Still hungry for more? Yep. Join our Patreon and get all episodes ad-free, plus twice monthly bonus episodes at patreon.com backslash curbsiders. You can find show notes at thecurbsiders.com and sign up for our mailing list to get our weekly show notes in your inbox including our Curbsiders Digest, recapping the latest practice-changing articles, guidelines, and news in internal medicine. We're committed to high-value practice-changing knowledge, and to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on YouTube, Spotify, or Apple Podcasts, or email us at askcurbsiders at gmail.com. A reminder that this and most episodes are available for free CME credit for all healthcare professionals through VCU Health at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. A special thanks to ourselves for writing and producing this episode, as well as the whole team with Curbsiders. Our technical production is done by the team at Podpaste. Elizabeth Proto runs our social media, and Stuart Brigham composed our theme music. Until next time, I've been Moni Amin. And I'm still Meredith Trubit. Thank you and good night. Good night.